Okay, we are in Hebrews 11 and verse 17. It says here, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offered up, was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendant shall be called. And he considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. So here we have introducing the concept of typology. Do you know what typology is? It's the study of types, and a type would be an event or sometimes an object. It can be an object or an event in the Old Testament that prefigures something in the New, usually about Christ or salvation uh, particularly. And a type, and there's also a word antitype, which generally isn't literally, literally translated from the Greek, but there's the idea of the type and the antitype. Now, the word type would be somewhat similar to like a, a the part of the typewriter that would make an impression. Okay? Because it would and then leave an image on the paper that would be in the, in the same form that the piece of type was. But used uh, figuratively, it means an event that prefigures something else or an object. For instance, the Ark of the Covenant is a type. That's an object, but it's a type of Christ. The mercy seat is a type. The gold cover prefigures Christ's sacrifice. So here we have Abraham offering up Isaac by faith and receiving him back as a type. And the book of Hebrews here is using terminology to point out that this is very clearly a type of Christ because he's also called his only begotten son. And what does the Bible say about Jesus? He's the only begotten Son. Now, there's a number of uh, very amazing uh, um, details to this type that we can see as we read Genesis. And that's found in Genesis 22, 1 through 12. So why don't we turn to that? I know I preached on this a while back, but maybe you weren't all there. Genesis 22. I did preach a sermon on this, but I don't know, that was some months ago. And maybe we can see a few more details here to help us have a better appreciation for the inspiration of Scripture. Once you see how all these things work together, it really does show you the Holy Spirit must have inspired the Bible because I don't think people could have figured that out. You know, it's just too beyond what people would think of. It says in Genesis 22.1, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. Now that's what's mentioned here in Hebrews 11.17, testing. God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take now your son, your only son. There's where Hebrews gets the idea of the only begotten. Whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. So Abraham arose early in the morning and settled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go yonder and we will worship and return to you. Now this detail where he says, we will worship and return to you, probably is the background for the book of Hebrews here, where it says that he believed even God was able to raise men from the dead. All right? That even if necessary, though he's supposed to sacrifice Isaac, he believed that even if necessary, God would raise him from the dead. And so his faith says, we will return. All right? We will return. We will worship and we will return. Now, notice in verse 6 again of Genesis 22, we'll see another detail which is part of our typology. 
And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and the two walked together. Now, when I preached on this, I found a citation from a Jewish source, and um, which is very interesting because, of course, they're, they wouldn't believe like we do that Jesus is the Messiah. But this Jewish commentary on Genesis 22.6 said this, that, that Isaac with the wood on his back walking up the Mount Moriah would be like a, a condemned man carrying his cross. And so isn't it interesting that even a Jewish commentary would see that kind of typology and um, which makes you wonder why they wouldn't also see it. Now, this may, I think that citation may have been from before the time of Christ. It was from Midrash. Uh, Midrash is Jewish commentary on, on, on the Bible, and they had an interesting way they did Midrash. And uh, so this would be very strong evidence that uh, Isaac indeed was the type of Christ because Christ carried the cross on his back. And now the tradi- it's traditionally believed that the very place that um, Isaac was brought was the very place where Christ was crucified later. And the, and the, Jewish, uh, the Jewish commentators believed that this place where Isaac was taken to be sacrificed became the Temple Mount, or, uh, uh, Moriah was also the Temple Mount area. So there's some interesting uh, things going on here. Down to some very significant details. So he says, well, return. He has the wood on the back of his only son, Isaac. And now, if you know the story of Genesis, there was a lot of intrigue and a lot of sorrow and a lot of misery and a lot of testing just for Isaac to come into the world. They'd already had this uh, Ishmael event and all kinds of things. So now, after finally, after he was too old, they have Isaac, and now God says, go sacrifice him. And then it says in verse 8, no, verse 7, And Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the burnt offering? Now look what Abraham says in verse 8. Abraham said, God will provide, God will provide, the, for himself, the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And this was also a statement of faith. And it was one of these names of God that we often cite. Uh, Jehovah Yira, God will provide. God will see. Literally, it means see. And then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now, for I now, excuse me, now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham raised his eyes and there was a... Um, lamb or a ram. And then it says in verse 14, And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord will be provided. Isn't that amazing? Yira, Jehovah Yira. Now, the, this great event in history one of the things that you need to realize about typology is that two things are true. One thing is true is that the event literally happened in history. This isn't just a story. A real, historical, literal person named Abraham really did this. That's what we believe. But we also believe that the Holy Spirit, and uh, working in the inspiration of Scripture, has ordained that these things would prefigure future salvation. And this was uh, even mentioned here in Genesis 22 because um, in verses 17 and 18 it says, Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will multiply your seed as the stars of of the heavens and as the sand um, which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies 
And in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So there will be blessing to all the nations, and that's what has happened through Messiah. Now, this is a great incident that illustrates faith. And so now back to Hebrews, it says it was a type. A lot of a lot of typology here. The 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 wood on Isaac's back, the uh, the ram that's provided as a substitute is a is a typological enactment of the substitutionary atonement, the place of the sacrifice, the um, the fact that he received him back as from the dead would be uh, prefiguring in type the fact that Jesus, the, the only begotten Son of God, would die and would come back from the dead. All of this is um, very detailed and um, significant typology. So, a little bit of no extra charge to learn about typology today in church. Okay, um, by faith, back to verse 17, Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, now the key issue here in Hebrews 11 is faith. What, what does faith all about? What does it look like? Well, it says it's evidence of things not seen. It says in Hebrews 11.6 that he that comes to God must believe that he is and he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Uh, Abraham believed God. Abraham believed that God would provide for him. Abraham believed the promise that in his seed all the families of the earth would be blessed. Abraham believed that God could raise the dead if needs be to fulfill the promise. And so Isaac, he offered. And it was a test. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested. The test um, wasn't designed to make Abraham fail. The test was not designed to, for God to gain information that God lacked. <laughs> Do you know why I say that? Now that I know, there's a guy over in St. Paul that says that's literally true. God didn't know before. God was lacking the knowledge. God had to test Abraham so God would know. And I say, I wrote an article refuting that position. No, the test is designed so Abraham and all subsequent readers of Scripture would know. God knows all things, including the heart. And in my article, which I refute this, open view of God that says God is learning as history progresses and God's gaining new information. I said that in this particular case, there are many reasons why we know that when God says, now I know, that we, that we can't take that to be literal. Because before Abraham actually raised the knife, the intent to do so was already in his heart. Is that not right? Because actions issue forth from the human volition and or whatever motivates us to do whatever it is we do. Well, the Bible very clearly claims that God knows the heart. So if God didn't know that Abraham, as he's raising a knife, really intended to do this, then he wouldn't even know the heart. And so it would not only be the future that he didn't know, he would also not know the heart of man. And that's a direct denial of what God says in the Bible, where it says God knows the heart. So, we have to take that literally. So, the test is, is for us, not for God. God uses it to perfect us. Brad. Brad, I totally agree with you. We need to know... And now, in Peter's case, a very good example, Peter failed the test. But yet, Peter was still the Lord's disciple. But um, Jesus had told him in advance, Satan has asked permission to sift you as wheat. But after you're converted, I prayed for you that, prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And after you're turned or converted, strengthen your brethren. So, Peter... Failing the test was for Peter's own benefit because he found out not to rely on Peter, but on God. <laughs> okay, He found out that he was, he was, uh, his faith was in self, not in Christ. Because he said, though, all, though everyone else deny you, I will not. And then when he did, he realized that he had put un, 
reasonable amount of confidence in self. Now, this tells me something else I think that we should do. In this matter of typology and testing is brought up again in 1 Corinthians 10. So let's turn to that. Because we want to understand the Lord's dealings with us as well. And He does test us. And Hebrews, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 10 also talks about typology. And it also talks about testing and what we're supposed to learn from it. It says in uh, verse 1, For I, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Notice he brings up this term baptized. Um, so, there are two types that Paul sees here. Going through the sea was a type of baptism in water. And the cloud was a type of baptism of the Holy Spirit. Two, two types of baptism mentioned in the New Testament. God baptizes in water and in the Holy Spirit. That's typology here. And then it says, And they ate the same spiritual food, and they drank the same spiritual rock, and they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And, and what does it say? The rock was Christ. Now, does Paul mean that the rock was literally Christ? No, he means it was a type of Christ. Now, how was the rock a type of Christ? Yeah, it was stri- yeah, the water came out, but it was smitten, right? And the water came out. Now, why was it that Moses wasn't allowed to go into the promised land? He, sm- he came back and got mad and struck the rock twice. And the reason that was so bad was it destroyed a type. Because Jesus Christ is crucified once, and out of that one act comes the spiritual water that nourishes us unto eternal life. It says, anyone believes in me out of his innermost being shall spring a river of living water. This comes from the one thing. So when Moses went back and struck it again, it would be like destroying this type that God intended. So that shows you that God takes these things seriously. Now, when, when I first read the Bible... And I was a new Christian in Bible college in 1971. And so I started just reading through the Old Testament. I came to this and I thought, wow, God is strict. <laughs> okay, this Moses is a pretty good guy. And look at all the good things he did. Now he doesn't get to go in just because of this. Why is God so strict? Well, it took me a while to figure out typology and understand that this was there was an important reason. It wasn't just God overreacting or whatever we might think. God is perfectly loving and just. Well, let's go back here. Let's just see what all happens. It's amazing, isn't it? Now, um, it says here, the rock was Christ. Now, verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, he's pointing out the example that out of all of these people that came out, the adults, the older people, they all died in the wilderness except for two. Right? Um, Joshua and Caleb. Yeah, It's coming back to me. I, 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 don't, I don't know if I'm going to be very articulate today because I was woke up all night with thunder, thunder, wake up, thunder, wake up, thunder, wake up. So you sleep 15 minutes, wake up, sleep 15, wake up. So that's my excuse. <laughs> so normally I just sit silver-tongued and the words flow out of my mouth. But not today. It's like when you golf. We usually on the first tee get all the excuses out of the way. I got a sore back. I haven't practiced. There's no in <laughs> There's no mulligans in preaching. <laughs> but if I say something that's way off, stop me. All right. I don't want any heresy going out, even if I didn't get any sleep. So um, they, it says here that they were laid low. Well, whereas just Joshua and Caleb made it, made it in, and then the, the younger generation that was raised up while they were in the wilderness. Now, notice verse 6. This will give us a good clue about how typology works. Now, these things happened as examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they also crave. Now, there's two things that are true. As I said about uh, Isaac, uh, Abraham Isaac, two things are true. The first one is this. These things happened. All right? These things happen. These aren't mythological stories that somebody made up. These things really did happen. This is cold, sober, literal history. 
because it serves as an example doesn't mean it didn't really happen. You can learn from real history. These things happen. The second thing is true is that they are examples for us that we can learn from. And it, and it says here that we shouldn't crave evil things. Now, the warning here is against idolatry. They, they had the Lord. They had the manna. They had the pillar of fire. They had the pillar of cloud. They saw the Red Sea split. So they, they didn't have to really wonder whether God existed. They saw evidence day by day by day that God, the supernatural creator of the universe, exists. And so, why would a bunch of people seeing all these miracles and knowing God exists build a calf and worship it? Good point. They could see it. They, 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 all that they saw wasn't enough. And they said, we can't see Moses. He's up there in the mountain somewhere. Let's build a God we can see. And we'll say the calf took us out of Egypt. And so, this is, this is sinful. Isn't that dumb? And, but it's sinful human nature. And it isn't any less sinful today when people build idols and they worship anything less than God himself on his terms. It is simple to do idols. And so it says here, <coughs> excuse me, and, and do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and they stood up to play. Well, that goes back to the, you saw it in the movie, remember? Who, who was, uh, well, I don't know, Charlton Heston and all these famous actors back in the 50s were in the movie. Uh, Ten Ten Commandments, yeah. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Now, um, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. So it's just reminding us Numbers 14, Exodus, all these passages were these incidents. They had a lot of trouble in the wilderness, and they kept coming under God's judgment. Now, it says here, look at verse 11. This will help us understand typology. Now, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That brings us back to what Brad was saying, uh, very astute, uh, bringing up about Peter. Peter thought he'd stand. But he fell. And the example is that if these people that God brought out of Egypt and went through the Red Sea and saw the water come out of the rock and they received the manna and they saw the pillar of fire, saw the pillar of cloud, saw God's dealings directly, if these people could fall into idolatry, so could we. And we shouldn't ever uh, say... Uh, that could never happen to me. I, I, I'll stand. I won't deny you. That is tantamount to setting yourself up for a big fall. And New Testament faith is circumspect. And I think that people that understand the gospel, understand God's grace, are people who say, but by the grace of God, there go I. That's not a Bible verse. But it's a, it's a true saying. It's a good, it's true theology, but by, by the grace of God, dare go I. And the grace of God is what makes, I don't know, did you hear, I didn't have time to announce that, that Jan was going to have me on her show, but we were talking yesterday, second hour, about some of these things. And one of the things I brought up was this article in the paper that described the stark contrast between different people in, that were left in the, that city that was underwater. And a very interesting eyewitness account was, the contrast between how different people were responding. There were people cursing, blaspheming, lighting buildings on fire, just wicked, evil, despicable things they were doing. And then you'd come across another group and they were praying and saying the Lord's Prayer and, and crying out to God. And now what's the difference? These are all human beings. These are all human beings created in the image of God. These are all human beings that are rational. At least they were created that way to be rational. What's the difference between the group praying and, and, and giving glory to God 
and the group acting like wicked, despicable people. Faith. By faith, Abraham offered up Isaac. The difference is that they believed the gospel and the grace of God is making them new creatures in Christ. And I can't say, well, I would stand. I would be one. I hope I would. I, by God's grace, I hope that if that happened to me, I'd keep giving him the glory. I hope I would be like Job and say, the Lord's given, the Lord's taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. But I'm not in that circumstance. But if you want to be prepared for that circumstance, put your faith in God and trust Him. Because God is able to make us stand. Well, you'd almost have to give Him the glory because what else could... What else could you do? Yeah, right. What can you do? Right. And God is being merciful even in His... His, uh, um, as he providentially allows sorrows to come on the face of the earth, God's still a merciful God. And, and you know, there's some discussion about is this God's specific judgment? I frankly didn't agree with Jan's first hour guest, but I decided not to confuse the listeners by coming on and saying what I thought. The reason I didn't uh, agree with him is he said this is God's specific judgment against that city, Connecticut City. And it's God's judgment against George Bush for the Gaza Strip. I don't think we can know that. And the other thing is, we can read in the Bible what it looks like when God judges a city. And let me tell you what happens. There's no survivors. He, yeah, they, they, they got off too easy. If that was God's judgment, they wouldn't still be there. Um, when God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, how many people came out? Just Lot and his family, and they only got out because the angels grabbed them and drug them out of there. All right? So that's the exemplary judgment. Now, I believe, and I agree with Jan, because she said this is birth pangs. I agree with that. And I believe that this is a sign from God that we're near the end of the age, because these things are. I mean, the rapid deterioration of our ability to manage planet Earth. And it's a sign of words to come. Exactly. Uh, and I think that's absolutely true. But I would say that first hour guess went a little too far, but you can... I don't know. It's a guy I don't know. And I'm not trying to be critical of Jan or her show. I love her and her show. And I think a lot of people believe like that guy, and uh, that's fine. They can, they can uh, defend their position the best they can from Scripture. But I, I think it's going a little bit too far, but it's certainly not going too far to say God is warning us. Yes? I got a... Uh, more than one friend, but one especially who uh, is real keen on hypocrisy and judgment and things like that. Which I believe in myself, but uh, I'm in preparing to go and talk to him because he's like this, apparently, I didn't do Mr. Show, but um, this person who was uh, declaring that this was God's judgment on her. I've been seeking the Lord, what do I go and tell him? And one of the things that I notice in Scripture is that it's unprecedented for God to merely judge a city unless it was a city-state as Nineveh, as Sodom and Gomorrah. But he never um, isolated a city within a country or a nation. Hmm. So uh, what I plan on telling this person is, if that's what you believe, if, you know, rather than say this isn't God's judgment, but if you really believe that this judgment from God, you are on the verge uh, if you don't declare it like it's like Elijah, well, it's man, you know, equally deserving of this judgment in the man of whom he lives, um, that this really belongs on all of us, if that's what you believe. That it is God, right. the rest of us escape. Right. If God judged the nation, he would judge the whole nation. That's, that's an interesting point. And there are other things. I'm going to write an article on this because I think a lot of people have the same questions. The other thing that we see in, in these, it, God can bring exemplary judgment. It's not the final judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah, it says in Peter, to serve as an example for all those thereafter. Now, it doesn't mean that every time another city gets that way, God will wipe them out too. It means that God considers this sinful. And that those who do these sort of things are facing God's wrath in eternity. Right? But he always sent a prophet. And in that case, he sent an angel, the angel of the Lord, which a lot of people think were the Lord himself, uh, in the case of Sodom. He sent Jonah in the case of Nineveh, who wasn't actually wiped out. 
And in the case of, of Israel and Jerusalem, the nation went first, and then, then the last thing to stand was, was Jerusalem. Um, he sent Jeremiah. So I don't, where is the prophet of God? Well, some one clerk called in and said somebody was the prophet of God. And I said, well, go to do. Yeah, they're coming out of the woodwork. Yeah, I was the prophet. I said it was going to happen. Well, you know, after the fact, prophets are going to be proliferate. But I think if we take this in the same context of any other calamity that would be happening, that the earth is in trouble. And that we should see how um, vulnerable we are and how badly we need the Lord. And that message is so clear. I think some of the, trying to go too far just confuses the gospel in people's minds. Um, uh, I don't know that you know, because it's New Orleans, it's very tempting to say it really they really are worse sinners. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the fact is, there are no even a sports page today was talking about how sinful New Orleans was because they they talk about what it was like to go down there to write on sporting events and what the city was like. That, that is true. And so it's tempting to think, well, that God singled them out. But I don't know that we know that. I don't know if we have enough information to declare that. So I wanted to state my position here to people here at the church. Well, of course. This pro- right. And that, I'm going to talk about this in a sermon about God's providence, the difference between his moral will and his providential will. That's categories we need or we can't understand it. Providence is God's oversight of the universe, including all of history. But we need to realize that providence includes both good and evil. Uh, let me give you an example. God providentially allowed Hitler to come on the scene of history. Now, this is evil. Horrible, horrible evil. What good could come out of it? Well, I'll give you one good, for an example, that Israel became a nation because of what happened in World War II. And that was something God had prophesied way back in the Old Testament. This, but there's no, this is a horrible evil. And we're to, we're to resist evil, we're to fight evil. But nevertheless, God does use it. I'll talk about that in the sermon. Uh, because God used, the, um, God used Jacob's evil, deceiving, to bring about his purpose. And he used Laban's evil, deceiving, there's a lot of evil in the story, but the underlying motif is God is still marching forward with his purposes of bringing salvation to the families of the earth through the, the children of Israel. Yeah, to give himself glory. So I think those kind of messages, I'll write an article on this and um, starting as soon as this book is done. Maybe next week I'll start writing. I want to uh, explain the categories that we need to know to understand these things. I think people are asking about it. Okay, back here. Now, these people were tempted as an example. Right? And we're supposed to learn from the example. What is the example? Well, at verse 12, 1 Corinthians 10, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest fall. Now look at verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you might be able to endure it. Therefore, flee idolatry. That's an interesting statement. First of all, there's this promise that God will keep us. He kept Abraham. He's able to preserve us. I believe that God will preserve genuine faith. That doesn't mean people with genuine faith will never fail, but that God will get us back up on our feet. (laughs) Right. If we have to go through the fire, we have to go through trials. Whatever may happen, God will somehow create a way of escape. Brad. The Bible uses temptation like it does in Peter. You know, the Lord knows how to deliver your God out of temptation. I mean, is that trials and temptation? Is it really talking about both of them? Isn't that word used interchanged? Trials and temptations. A good point. I think that they're somewhat interchangeable, but there is a slight difference. A direct temptation would be something that's evil that looks attractive to us, right? Here is some evil thing that the world's doing, and we're attracted to it. We're tempted. But another way, a trial is a temptation in the sense that when we have faith and we go through a severe trial, we're tempted to waver in our faith. We're tempted to doubt that God really is taking care of us. 
you know, where is God's provision now? Look, look what's happening to me. So in a, in a sense, the trial does create a temptation for us. But in either case, it says there's a way of escape. Now, well, this is an intriguing idea. I'll tell you a fact from the Greek and then let you comment on it. It says in here, he will provide the way of escape, not a way of escape. There's a definite article. So there's some particular way of escape. What is it? Christ? Okay. That's an, that's an interesting idea. I think maybe it's related. My answer is faith. But Christ would be the object of our faith. But the way of our escape is faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. But he believed God. So I think faith is the way of escape, to believe God. Uh, well, interesting point. I think all true Christians have faith or they wouldn't be saved. Right? So a true Christian has faith. Um, we waver faith. We might say like the one guy, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. But there's something to draw on. But there may be such a thing, Sam, that what you're saying would be true. There may be someone who has mental assent only faith. In other words, false assurance. Somebody who thinks they're a Christian because they go to church, but they're not really. Um, such a person failing miserably in a temptation, God could use that to bring genuine faith to them. Okay, that God could use that to say, you know what, I thought I was a Christian, but look at this, and maybe truly believe the gospel then. What happened here, and he said, you know, I pray for you that your faith would fail. Well, his faith didn't fail. His faith in his <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's interesting, but, you know, as far as conversion goes, I don't believe those, those disciples were truly converted until after the cross. So... I believe that God used that to convert faith Peter. Yeah. Yeah. But faith has different nuances in the Bible. I can remember when Ryan preached down and he used those Latin words? Notitia. He's not here now. Um, there's three kind of words that have to, in Latin for faith and in, in theology they study these. Uh, one of them is fidus, where we get our word fiduciary trust. <laughs> uh, why should I talk about something I don't know? I guarantee you it's in my theology book, and it's very profound. I just can't remember right now. Those three Latin words, one has to do with knowing facts and, and, and affirming that the facts are true. A census, I think that is. And, and another has to do with putting trust in. Yes, Steve. I'm going to you got to trust God. That's great, Steve. Outstanding. So, oh yes. Oh, oh Mike. Sorry. Uh, I think the battle is always against our faith because the righteous will live by faith. So there's, we put our faith in Christ, that's where our life is. And if somebody wants to kill us, they want to destroy our faith and you know, spiritually kill us. And that's what Satan is out to do. Uh, that's what he did to uh, Eve in the garden. Uh, you can see the two uh, criminals that were crucified with Jesus. You can see one had faith to live and the other uh, didn't have any faith. You look at Ephesians and Paul talks about the shield of faith. The, faith, the shield of faith protects you from uh, destruction. And 
you know, it, it, it's, you know, if I, if I want, if I am the devil or if I am an evil power and I want to destroy you, you know, coming up and slaying you if you have faith doesn't destroy you, but coming up and destroying your faith hmm. and then letting you go has eternal ramifications for destruction. Okay, so that makes sense. So Satan's attacks are going to be against our faith. It's a gift from God. <laughs> yeah, through the gospel. It's nurtured. The gospel not only is the means God uses for salvation, but it, the gospel itself nurtures our faith. Did you know that? Uh, think about the passage in Revelation. Uh, the accuser of the brethren went before God day and night to accuse them. How did they overcome him? Yeah, the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. Sort of exactly what you're talking about, Mike. They, they, the thing that sustained them under the attack was the very thing that saved them to start with, the blood of Jesus Christ. And, that, and that's a shorthand for the whole gospel, the substitutionary atonement, the resurrection. It's all included in that, that why we have confidence. Luann. Well, I think it's interesting what you said, too, because really that's what the martyrs can do first. You know, they could have very easily, you know, let the sword kill them quickly, but they were always asking them to bring out. Right, and it said because they loved not their lives unto death, they persevered and overcame the accuser. And so, whether they lived or died, they overcame. And that passage, Luann, that's a good point. That passage explains what an overcomer is in Revelation when it talks to the churches. He overcomes, and then there's these seven promises to overcomers. One in each church, he overcomes, he overcomes. An overcomer is someone who has faith that is so profound that it can't even be destroyed by martyrdom or by a direct tax against their their own lives. Now, how do we know how do we know that that's us? Somebody might say, um, maybe I would just deny Christ and run away. Well, if you feel like you might do that, that's a good sign that you have real faith. Not that you would do it but that you're not trusting yourself. Remember that Keith Green song where it says, I bet you I could deny you too, Lord? If, if, see, when Peter says, though I'll deny you, I never will, that's a bad sign. When we say, well, I'm sure I could deny God, but I bet you he'll keep me from it because he's such a gracious God and he's working in even weak people like me, that's a better way to look at it. Brad? Yeah, amen. It's like that, that news story about the people in, still trapped after days in a flooded city and, and they were heard praying the Lord's Prayer. And one of the things in there is lead us not into temptation. Here's people all around not only being led to temptation, they're looking for what wickedness they can do. And these people are saying, Lord, lead us not into temptation. Uh, that's a good prayer. Yes, Kathy. Every time there is a disaster anywhere and they start interviewing people, you, you, it's not hard to figure out who the Christians are. Because when the worst comes and the worst is the worst is the worst that we're ever going to see, a Christian will always be thinking about the Lord and giving Him the glory. It's just the way God works in us. It says here, there's no temptation overtaking you, but it's common to man. So everybody's tempted. But God's faithful to preserve those who put their trust in Him. Alright? So, be encouraged in that. And... The reason we continually go over Scripture and over the Gospel again and again is because we need it to strengthen our faith and to, to preserve us. Now, we're back to Abraham. He was tested. He obeyed God. One of the, things, one of the evidences of gen, genuine faith is obedience. And he offered up Isaac. And he received the promises, was offering up his only begotten son. So he was trusting God and putting his, his uh, faith in God, and he was obeying God. So Abraham serves as a marvelous example of someone who was 
um, exemplary in his faith. Okay, I got a couple other cross references. Uh, Brian, could you do Deuteronomy 8:2, and uh, Denise Malachi 3:2 through 3, and Kathy James 1:2 through 4. Help me again. I'm sorry. Your name, Jerry. Jerry. I'm so sorry. I wish I could remember every name. I really do. Sunday school helps. So. <laughs> okay. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. Um, Deuteronomy 8, 2. And you shall remember all the way which, your, which the Lord your God led you these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to prove you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. To humble you and prove you, or another translation says test you to see whether you keep his commandments or not. So the 40 years was a time of testing to see if they would trust God and obey God. Malachi 3, 2, and 3. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like the refiner's fire and like laundry's soul. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them with gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Wow. So Messiah will be a purifier. The day of the Lord is going to bring purity to the offering. And it's a refiner's fire. There's our expert. What were those three Latin words for faith? Notitia, ascensus, and fiducia? See? I had it right and I didn't even know it. I was trying to, and my, uh, I, I'm blaming it on the fact that the thunder woke me up last night. Go ahead and give the definitions. Uh, no, she, okay, three facets of a genuine faith is basically what... The, it comes from the Reformers. The Reformers, you know, the big thing about the Reformation was we're justified by faith alone. So, the thing that the Reformers started arguing about, okay, well, what is a genuine faith and what isn't a genuine faith? Because we're saved by grace through faith alone. So ultimately, they basically agreed on, okay, and that's right. A genuine faith has three facets. It's, one is noshia, one is a census, and another is fiducia. Noshia is the content of the gospel. We get our word notion from that. Notion, you know, it's, just, it's the concept. It's the necessary content of the gospel. It needs to be there. We need to believe that Jesus was... Sinless, we need to believe that he was God, that he was man. We need to believe that he died on the cross for our sins. And we need to believe he was risen on the third day. Amen. We need to believe all those things. That's the notion. That's the notion. That needs to be there. We're part of a genuine faith. Then you have a census. And the census is assent. So you need to have that. You need to have an assent that, okay, not only is this content there, but you need to assent to the fact that these are true. These are these are our true 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 concepts. So, but the interesting thing there is, if you only have those two things, I remember a, a teacher said this: if you only have those two things, the only thing that qualifies you to be is a demon, because a demon has demons have that concept and they assent to that it's true that he that he did these things. So, really, the crowning facet, but you can't you have to have those things. These things have to be there. The crowning facet of faith is this fiducia, which is the element of Trust, the element of, it, of, of going before the throne, repenting and trusting in these, the finished work of Jesus Christ. So those three things, and that's complete, that's genuine faith. You have those three facets. They, they all need to be there. But if that, that's what constitutes genuine faith, and you go through the scriptures, that's really what genuine faith is. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad you came. I knew there was some reason. That... <laughs> yeah, thanks for joining us even for five minutes. Okay, we were looking up uh, James 1, 2 through 4. Kathy has that one. Um, I read and counted all the joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith should be patient. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect in speech, but that can happen. Okay, so have you ever heard people say that it's not a very good idea to pray for patience? What do you get when you pray for patience? Trials. <laughs> but generally, most people think you'll get enough of them anyhow. Um, pray that you endure the trial when it does come. And then 1 Peter 7. 
wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. There's another passage. We're talking about Abraham's faith being tested. Another passage of that these trials and temptations have a, a very good and important purpose that God uses. And he's preparing us for the return of Christ. Well, I, I did some writing on this. Actually, it was some of the first writing I did publicly. And the, the fact that everybody in this world goes through trials, there's no such thing as, as an unbeliever that doesn't go through tribulation and trials because this world's fallen and sinful. But the, the difference is believers are promised that their trials have a good purpose to them. And unbelievers, on the flip side, oh, their yeah. trials are fruitless. In, in, in fact, they, look at, listen, I, if you listen to Bob on the radio yesterday, the trials that they're going through down in New Orleans is a good demonstration. The people that are, are, are unbelievers are blaspheming God. It, it, it serves as kind of a watershed. Yeah. These trials are, are turning, the purpose of these trials is to show that these people truly don't believe, they blaspheme God. And the Christians are demonstrating patience and perseverance in the midst of these yeah. So the purpose is there, and we, we're guaranteed that in any, any trial. Right. And I think uh, God used, like you say, God uses these trials to glorify Himself in the example of the two different people. The one trusting in God, God is glorified by the different responses. In other words, uh, two completely different, completely opposite reactions from the same catalyst. And when uh, people who do have faith continue to have faith and continue to uh, pray to God and to uh, thank God and to seek God. Uh, God is glorified through that. And it's His work, it's His Spirit doing this work in those people, and He is glorified by that. And Amen. Look how God is glorified through Abraham's example. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is the uh, type, and it, was, it led to the Messiah. Right. <laughs> you weren't even here, and you know what we talked about. We covered all that. <laughs> Brian was up practicing music. That's why I just got here. We, don't now, we, we had a whole class studying typology. We started in um, Hebrews, and then we went to Genesis 22, and then I went to 1 Corinthians 10, the type of the wilderness wanderings. And, and, and so we could study typology. So um, you didn't know you were going to learn typology today in, in church, but you did. So uh, we'll have a time of fellowship.